So, hey, it's my bad. I should have looked at the current schedule. So, uh, I was just chilling out. I was in my room. I was looking over my notes. I was praying. I thought, you know, I'm just going to go over. I don't really want to eat supper right before I speak, so I think I'll just go visit. So, I walked over to the snack shop. I'm visiting with people at the snack shop. I'm walking around the lake. Y'all catching fish? I decided, well, I'll head over to the dining room. It's still 45 minutes before you start. There was nobody there. And uh, some guys went, Jimmy, uh, they started. And I was like, what? <laughs> Sorry about that. I just kind of do, 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 taking my time. <laughs> I heard the song going, and I was like, man, I'm missing worship, you know? And we have so much fun back there in the green room. I hated missing that part too, but it's all right. God is good. <laughs> exactly. I want to give away something. I have a uh, friend that he created this really cool thing called wire-ups. And I don't know, do y'all have a lot of barbed wire fences in California? I, I just, I'm not really sure if you do or not, to be honest with you. But we have quite a number of them in Tennessee. And uh, this buddy of mine, he's a special forces guy, and he's into bull riding and stuff and all that. And he invented this little widget thing. It looks like that. And it's very simple. You take a, the top two strands of the barbed wire, you just go click, and it breaks them hold up. Then you take the next two, and you click, and it forms this beautiful V. And you can just pass right under, and then you take these off and stick them back in your pocket. They weigh two ounces. So I just want to give one away. I'm going to give it to the youngest person here. Who is the very young? Let me have every kid that's 12 or under run down here real fast. Let me just find out who you are, because I have something else for y'all, too. Oh, I didn't bring enough. Don't get up here. Don't get up here. Get back down. Just turn around and look at me. Man, we got a bunch of you little toe-headed fellows. How about that? You big old man warriors of God here. Okay, I think you may be the youngest. How old are you, sir? Six. Six? Anybody? Well, make it up. Are you six or seven? Which one? You're seven? All right, is anybody seven or younger? How old are you? Seven. You're both seven. Okay, y'all look at me and grin. Who's missing the most teeth? Let me see. Look at me. Grin. Smile. Let me see your teeth. You got all your teeth. You're missing yours. These are yours, buddy. There you go. Here, now let me, let me tell you boys something out right there. Hand it to him. Um, let me tell you all something, okay? Um, I didn't bring enough. I wish I had. Um, I've written a book for 7 to 12-year-olds. It's called The Legend of Indian Rock Cave. It's my very first attempt at writing a novel, and it's pretty exciting. And it also teaches the way of the cross. So by the time you get to the end of it, this really healthy family. Don't you all like the concept of having a healthy family? Yeah, like... The traditional family that the Bible talks about. Anyway, so no, I'm not joking. That's what I promote. And, uh, and by the end of it, you're going to be coming to this cross thing that has, it's made out of Scripture, and it gives you enough verses that you can memorize the way to the cross. And you'll always have those with you. So on this little book, I have like nine left, so there's not enough for all of you. But I want you all to make sure you go home with one. So even if you can't afford they they're $10. And I need that to pay for the next book. But I know you don't have $10, so I'm not asking you for it. I want you to go back and say, Dad, get me that book. <laughs> or Grandpa, go get that book, all right? Uh, if you can't afford it, seriously, if you can't afford it, take it, okay? Uh, it's not about the money. It just takes money to get more of them, okay? So if you want to pay it forward, that's fine. But I want you guys to, to have this. And if you don't get one, take my card, and uh, you can write me a letter and send it to the post office box, or you can send me an email and uh, give me your address, and we'll see if we can get one to you. And if there's anybody here who wants to pay one for, for one of these kids, come see me because every bit of that will go to these kids, okay? So there you go. Let's give these guys a hand. Y'all are awesome. Thanks for being here this weekend. 
This is another way we can get the message out, and, and we need to reach this generation right here, okay? That, that generation may actually save our country right there. So uh, let's, let's do everything we can to empower them and help them. So tomorrow, after I get through speaking, I'm going to be um, boogieing out of here fast. I've got to be able to be in my car and leaving by, I believe, 11, or else that phone call also may be uh, news like, oh, well, your, your flight got canceled or whatever. I don't know. I'm going to find out. But I just will be uh, moving out quickly. So I'd love to visit tonight. If anybody wants to come back to the table and visit, or if there's a book or something you want, be sure and get it uh, back there tonight, if you would, please. All right? Okay. Lord God, we are thankful for this opportunity just to get to worship again. Man, we had a great worship this morning. Worship tonight was awesome. We love worshiping you and just focusing on you. We love your word. We love the way you speak to us. You talk to us. We love the fact that you put your spirit in us and you guide us and you shape us and you mold us and counsel us and comfort us. And man, I tell you, we need all that stuff. And we love you so much. And it's good. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with a band of brothers. And I pray you'll bless every one of these men and boys, these teenagers that have come here, two generations, three generations, guys for the first time. Lord, bless the staff here. Uh, I just I thank you for Jason. I thank you for uh, the, the guys in the band and just for everybody here at Hume, Lord. I pray your blessings on this place for this summer that's coming up. Lord, it's, it's going to be a hectic five and a half weeks as they get ready. Anoint the process, Lord. And go before them with your army and help them get it done. And we thank you, Lord. And we love you. And we praise your holy name in Jesus. Amen. Hey, I love you guys. And I appreciate y'all very much. Now, I mentioned this morning, in case you were out fishing, and we do not hold that against you. Um, but I do believe the guys that were here will enjoy heaven more than you do. So anyway, other than that, <coughs> I don't think it'll send you to hell. <laughs> But I did mention this morning there's two types of guys. Those who, once you leave, you've told your family, go to the bathroom because I sure ain't going to stop until we get there. It's all about the destination. And then there's the guys that really just relax and enjoy and stop along the way. And they'll, you know, see things and all that kind of stuff. And they're really in no hurry. And both get to the destination. I know that some of you are impatient about getting to the destination of the gospel. But we are still on the journey. And we're half done, and we're going to be two-thirds or three-fourths done by the time we finish tonight. But the big destination, the big aha, is tomorrow morning. So don't leave early unless you just have to, all right? Because I know what's coming, and it's really exciting, all right? Tonight, we're jumping back in where we left off this morning. We finished the previous session talking about the giants of the Bible. And we discovered there are six different names given to the groups of giants, the Rephium, the Zuzum, the Emum, the Amorites, the Nephilim, and the Anakim. We saw that the average size was probably around 12 feet tall, and the average weight would have been about 1,000 pounds, and we have an exact reference to someone about that size with King Og of Bashan, who had a 13-and-a-half-foot iron bed that was six foot wide. And when you do this, the cube square law, then you can figure out about what he would have uh, weighed and how, high, or how tall he would have been. So we're going to come to the next question tonight. Where did these guys come from? Where did the giants originate? Well, let's go to Genesis 6. Open your Bibles to Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And we're going to go to this passage that is extremely difficult <laughs> for the church to interpret over the centuries. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful. And they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, 
My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward. Now what that is is a reference to pre-flood and post-flood. When the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. And Nimrod, whom we studied last night, was one of the ancient Nephilim race of giants. Genesis 10, 8 through 9, Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in defiance of the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight or in defiance of the Lord. Now, before we jump to any conclusions about this passage, we have to ask another one of our studious questions. And that question is this. Can angels even make an appearance on earth in the form of humans and function as humans in human bodies? Well, let's see if we can answer that question. Let's go to the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing so, some have welcomed, say it with me, angels as guests without knowing it. Now, let me just kind of throw something out here. If angels can be on earth, and we know that angels originate in heaven, angels are from God, right? Then it would be a good thing to have an encounter with those angels, right? But I believe, wouldn't it be true, that if there were angels that followed Satan in heaven in the great rebellion, and they were cast to earth as well as Satan, that might they be able to make the same appearance in the form of a human? This means yes, and this means no. Have you ever thought about that? Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, you know, you've welcomed some angels as guests without knowing it. You might have something along these lines. Be super careful, because there may be some humans that are actually angels of darkness that are posing as humans. So let's, let's kind of keep that in mind as we move through our study tonight. God visited Abraham, and two angels were with God. And Abraham made them a big old supper, probably took a while. And they had dinner with Abraham. They were in human appearance. And I'm just going to go ahead and project that if these angels in human bodies could eat food, then they probably had a digestive system that would then take care of the waste. Would you agree with that? They would probably get hungry, thirsty, need sleep, everything else that a human body needs, just like when Jesus came incarnate in a human body. That also would mean their reproductive organs would probably work. Now, many additional stories portray angels in human form throughout the both Old and New Testaments. We don't have to go to any more. You already know them, right? And so with that in mind, let's connect the dots of two major Old Testament texts. Let's go back to Genesis 6, 1 through 4 for just a second because we find in verse 4 there that word Nephilim. Do you see it over on the right, kind of toward the bottom? That word Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth in both those days and afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of men who bore them children. The Nephilim were the offspring of the sons of God, and the daughters of men. This was before the flood. An identical biblical Hebrew word appears in Ezekiel 32, 27. 
And it can be translated Nephilim, which means giants. It can also be translated, are you ready for this? In the Hebrew, fallen. Fallen. And what did we say the angels are that accompanied Satan and kicked out of heaven? Fallen angels. All right, here's what it says. They do not lie down with the fallen warriors of the uncircumcised who went down to Sheol with their weapons of war, whose swords were placed under their heads and their shields rested on their bones, although the terror of these warriors was once in the land of the living. This is a very important connect the dots for proper translation and understanding because it appears in Genesis 6 that the fallen angels had intercourse with the women and created a race of giants. And I want you to notice that the women were called the daughters of mankind, meaning they were purely human. However, the men were called sons of God, meaning they were not human. But they rather took on human form, which happens very often in the Bible. And the, this occurred before the flood, which was one of the major reasons for the flood. Then we read of the giants in the land after the flood. So it must have happened again after the flood. Because we know there were giants all the way up until a certain king and his strong warriors took care of them finally once and for all. Now Jesus said that angels don't marry. And I interpret that as the current status in the heavenly realms, but it's also a law for the earth. Matthew chapter 22, 30, Mark chapter 12, 25. However, angels can present themselves in human form and they can circumvent the laws of mankind. So let me give you a theory that is very important. My theory is that Satan, the great deceiver, was extremely ticked off at God for kicking him out. He was so charismatic that he was able to convince a third of the millions or billions or trillions of angels in heaven to follow him. There was a great war in heaven. Satan wanted God's number one spot, but he got his rear end kicked. And Peter says, I saw Satan fall like a star from heaven. So he's out. The angels that were with him, the fallen angels, the fallen warriors, they were out as well. And Satan is so mad. And here God has this beautiful garden in Eden and everything is perfect. And Satan tried to figure out how he could mess that up. And you know what he did? And I've done a lesson here at Hume called uh, The Decoys of Deception. Some of you might remember that one, where we got guys up here and we showed the desensitization line and all that kind of stuff. That was Satan's first successful hunt. And he got the garden in Eden all messed up, and the natural order of things became the unnatural order of things. So God had to come up with a plan to fix all of that, and he was going to have to choose a seed line through which he himself could become incarnate as a human being and become the sacrificial lamb. And Satan kind of got wind that this was going to happen, that there was going to be this bloodline, this seed line of this one that was to come that's going to fix all of this unnatural order of, of stuff, this brokenness, and restore it to its full natural order once again. And so he began to try to kill off the seed line. Now think about that. If, if that's how God's going to send the Savior to the world, through the seed line of humans, what better thing to do next than to mess up the seed line. And so what he did, I can only imagine, he calls his, his angels together, all of these fallen angels, millions, billions, trillions of them. And can't you just hear him? All right, boys, here's what we're going to do next. 
You see all those really pretty human females down there on earth? You're going to go in human form, and they're not even going to recognize that you're a, a son of now darkness, that you're a fallen son of God. And you're going you're gonna to pick and choose, and you're going to marry them, and you're going you're to have intercourse with them, and you're going to create these, this race of giants, of almost like demonized kind of men. And we're going to conquer the world. We're going to get it all back. Now, you understand that I'm promoting a theory here, but I believe it can be pretty fairly supported when we look at these scriptures that we're looking at. And I think we have the result here as the race of giants. And this explains two very important things. First of all, why would God send a great flood to exterminate the human race? Because they had messed it up really bad. Now, it also explains one more thing. If they did it again after the flood, and once again, the race of giants from the sons of God marrying the daughters of men were there so they could try to once again mess it all up, but God said, I'm not going to destroy it by water again, but I am going to send a certain, I'm going to pick a certain group of people, the Israelites. They're going to come through the line of Abram, and I am going to have them in this particular land that I'm going to give them. And guess where all the giants lived? Uh-huh. Have you ever connected that dot before? And so God told Moses, Joshua, Caleb, but especially Joshua, the great military commander, when you go in there, you wipe them out. You kill men, you kill women, you kill old people, you kill pregnant women, you kill children, you wipe them out. How many people have had a very big struggle accepting that kind of God who would do that to pregnant women? Now do you understand what God is doing? He had to do that to protect the seed line from whom the Savior of the world would come. Now, what happened to these angels? Because of their wicked deeds in trying to contaminate the human race, they were punished severely and they were punished eternally. And this is revealed in Jude 1.6 in the New Testament. And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. These angels that rebelled against God are being bound in utter darkness in the deepest regions of hell. And their vain attempt to prevent Jesus from coming to earth, from fulfilling his mission of salvation, brought extreme judgment upon them. And they're now in complete isolation. They're in darkness. They're in torment in the deepest abyss of hell. And I believe that Jesus preached to these fallen angels during the period between his death on the cross and his resurrection. Listen to the words of 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. You talk about the, the most amazing I told you so moment in the history of the universe. 
Can you just picture what it would be like for all of these angels who once had it so good and now have it so bad, and here comes who was once their king walking in. I wonder what he said to him. You know, there's places in Scripture where Jesus might do something like reach down and write in the sand, and we don't know exactly what he wrote, but boy, it was so impacting, wasn't it? And we don't know what he said when he made this, this preaching visit, but I bet it was pretty impacting. Maybe someday we'll know. So what I can do now is summarize that giants were the offspring of fallen angels and human women in an attempt to prevent the birth of the Savior. And in their rebellion against God, they were killed during Noah's flood and again later by the great, faithful, courageous leaders of the Israelites, and especially David, through whom the seed line of the Messiah was to come. So here's what we've answered this weekend so far. Are there giants mentioned in the Bible? Yes. Are there giants mentioned in extra-biblical references all across the universe, the world? Yes. How big were these giants? We don't know for sure, but probably around 12 feet. Where did they come from? Well, we just answered that, didn't we? So now we have to ask the next question. What happened to them? Well, let's start with this guy named Moshe. Musa, Moses as we know him. Moses was born into a situation that eventually put him in great prosperity as one of the probably about 200 children of Ramses II of Pharaoh. And Moses grew up for 40 years as a prince of Egypt. And he had his lear chariot and all of that stuff that goes with being a prince. A special tomb built for him. But of course, you know what happened when he was 40. He had to flee because he stood up for his Israelite people and killed an Egyptian guard. So now he's in the desert of Midian, which is this wasteland. And for the next 40 years of his life, you understand what he did there, right? And he was tending his father-in-law's sheep. And he came to a bush that was burning. And that story is amazing, isn't it? And he ends up leading the children of Israel out of Egypt he parts the Red Sea, God does, through him, and they get to go over. And then, of course, he goes up and gets the, the Ten Commandments. And then he leads the children of Israel in the wilderness. And he has all these crazy encounters with various things, including getting God to send manna and quail. And he strikes the, wa the rock and water comes out when he should have just spoke to it. And all these things happen. But ultimately, when he's about 120 years old, God takes him up on a mountain. And as you're looking over from this mountain, I was just there in September, you can see the Dead Sea down below. You can see Jericho. And you can see where King Og was from, over here on this side of the Jordan River. And you can see another place that Moses ended up conquering. And, and Moses is remembering the first two battles when they began to conquer the land. Because two of the battles happened before they crossed over the Jordan and took Jericho. Moses actually led two battles. And one of those battles, Moses was the first giant slayer. Who do you think he killed? Well, it was a guy that had a 13 and a half foot long bed made of iron and it was six feet wide. What was his name? 
King Og of Bashan. Moses conquered him and one other king. So he got two. And he knew that it is so important to raise up and train someone underneath you that will then be able to take over your reign and even surpass what you've done. And that young man was named Joshua. And he was one of those spies that was sent in when he was 40 along with Caleb. And this morning in our lesson, we really looked at that, didn't we? Because 10 of the spies came back and got a, gave a very negative report, but two didn't. They didn't disagree that there were giants in the land. They just disagreed that they could not be conquered. And so Moses and Joshua were told by God, because of your faith, I will allow you to go into the land of Canaan with anyone that is 40 years or younger, under 40 years at this point. But everyone else is going to have to die off. And so for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. And when it came time to finally go in, Joshua got everyone together. And he came up with a military strategy. And he knew that he was going to have a tough task ahead of him because there were around 30 more kings that were going to have to be conquered. And guess who some of those kings were? Giants. There were groups of giants all over that land there, especially from the city of the giants, Hebron. So Joshua decided that he would use the military strategy of cutting the land in two, so to speak, drawing a dotted line across there. Do you see where the Dead Sea is there? Right above the Dead Sea, he kind of drew a dotted line, and he went and got the five southern kingdoms first. And he conquered them so that the other 26 kings from up north couldn't get down and help them out. Then he turned north. And over a five-year campaign, he conquered the other 26 kings. So Joshua got 31 kings in all, Moses got two. That's how he conquered the land. Joshua 13, 12 talks about Moses. The whole book of Joshua talks about Joshua. He takes Jericho, Ai, Makeda, Labna, Lachish, Eglon, Hebron, Debur. And then it says in Joshua 10, 40, the whole region. And he was operating under the command from God to totally annihilate and that's what Joshua 11:20 says. For it was the Lord's intention to harden their hearts so that they would engage Israel in battle, be completely destroyed without mercy, and be annihilated, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And Joshua fought several battles against the Anakim and against the Amorites. It says, at that time, Joshua proceeded to exterminate the Anakim from the hill country, Hebron, Debir, Anam, all the hill country of Judah and of Israel. Joshua completely destroyed them with their cities. No Anakim were left in the land of the Israelites, except for some remaining in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Oh. Now, see, that's... That's a line that Joshua wished would not be put in the Bible. Except. Have you ever completely obeyed God? Except. Has anyone ever done that besides me? <laughs> Have you done it in the last 48 hours? Oh, Joshua. Come on, Josh. Except for some. Now let's look at that, that list of names again. Gaza. Gath and Ashdod. Do any of those names ring a bell? Where's Goliath from? Hmm. Connect the dots. 
Then we have this dude named Caleb coming back in the picture after all these years. Joshua comes back from five years of leading wars. He gets back to Gilgal north of Jericho. And by the way, this coming February, we're going to go and visit Gilgal and that encampment. They have just recently discovered using drones and, and actually I think using satellite images where they think the camp was at. It's about a 40-acre camp. They see 12 different stones there that were set up. They see a square that was about the shape of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And uh, I've talked to our tour company into letting us go in there. And they're like, it's out in the middle of nowhere. There's just a sign in front of it. And that's about it. I said, hey, get me a four-wheel drive bus. We're going, all right? And we're going to have a good time. By the way, Hume has a trip in November. And I highly recommend that you go with John Bowl and his group if you can. Uh, if you can't, then join us in February. There's information back there on the table about that. This place is very sacred. It's about eight miles north of Jericho. Joshua goes back there. It's where they crossed over originally. And he's kind of sitting in his recliner there, so to speak. And he's taking it easy. Maybe he's having a glass of lemonade or tea. I don't know. And, and Caleb walks up, slaps him on the back. Hey, buddy, Josh, how you doing, man? You had a big old conquest, didn't you? I sure did. Whew, I'm glad it's over. And Caleb is 85 years old right now. And Caleb basically says to him, you know, do you remember back when we came back and gave the positive report 45 years ago? Oh, I sure do. Aren't you glad we were positive? Aren't you glad we saw the, 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 the glass that only was half full of water as half full, not half empty? Oh, I sure am. But you know, one thing you've done here is you've given all the assignments of the land to everybody, but I don't have mine. And God said that we would get kind of our pick, you know, if we would do this because we were positive and said we can conquer it. So I'm ready for my pick. And so Joshua basically turns to, to, to Caleb and says, all right, well, I'll tell you what. What is it that you want? And, and Caleb says, you know that hill country where all those giants are, all those big fortified cities? I want them. And it was that group of accepts. And Joshua said, put your army together and go get them, big guy. And at 85, Caleb conquers the giants. Is that amazing? Yeah. How many of you feel like right now that you're at a point in your life, you're in your fourth quarter, you're hoping for maybe a little bit of overtime, but you're kind of like, man, you know, my best work is done, and I just want to kind of, you know, I just want to just do the best I can with what I have left. And it's almost like you're running on a low tank of gas, but you're still kind of just hanging in there. Anybody feel that way? Let me encourage you to, to begin looking at the fourth quarter of your life in a totally different way. I want you to look at it from a Joshua and Caleb way, all right? You have more experience than you had in the first three quarters of your life. You have probably more resources now than you had then. More expendable resources for the kingdom and for kingdom work. You have knowledge about your body that you didn't understand then. You know what your weaknesses are, and you can work on those. You know what your strengths are, and you can strengthen those, and you ask God to do this. But your relationship with God is so good, and you're so spiritually focused more than you were, that you're going to be receiving this special power that you've always had. You just haven't opened up to it. In other words, the fourth quarter very well could be your best quarter. It was for Caleb. 
And I know that Satan's going to try to distract us in this way. He's going to try to make you really focus on your pains and your aches and the way your spine is starting to curve a little bit and you got that lower back thing and, ooh, oh, that hurts and you can't lift maybe as much as you used to could or whatever. He's going to try to get you to focus on that because those are physical things. And yet you've got some spiritual battles that you can fight better as a warrior now than you could ever fight them before in your life. And I'm going to tell you something, guys. Right now, we need you to step to the front of the line. Okay? Oh, well, I'm going to empower these young men to put them up there. No, 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 no. Until you breathe your dying breath, you be a front-line warrior for God. And you go conquer some giants. I love Caleb. And I love his attitude. You know what? I do believe that because of Caleb's courage and him going in and doing even what Joshua didn't do made him legendary. I mean, we're talking about him tonight at Hume Lake, California, thousands of years later. Don't you think that the shepherd boys around their fires would talk about him? Don't you think the kids at the schools in Israel back in the B.C. days would talk about, you know, oh, Moses, he got two, and Joshua got his. But man, you know what? Joshua didn't even get the big giant guys, but Caleb did. And he was legendary. And I just have a feeling that there was this young 15-year-old shepherd boy near Bethlehem, youngest of seven boys, named David, who probably would sit out there and reflect on Caleb a lot. He was pensive, and he would think, and he would write songs and all of that. But at the same time, he would fight bears, and he would fight lions, and he would practice his warrior skills because he wanted to be like Caleb. They all wanted to be like Caleb. Wow, 85-year-old man goes and kicks the anicum. What? And I believe that we're going to see that David himself probably drew great courage from this 85-year-old man. There was another story that was probably also circulating around the fires. Because it seems that somehow a seed line, line remained from one of those three towns, the town of Gath. And maybe it was quiet. Maybe it was only one family of them. But we know that eventually one of them came out and became legendary. And he's the most famous giant in the Bible. And his name was, say it with me, Goliath. And David and all those other young shepherds and all those school kids probably had been hearing about this war machine Philistine, this huge giant of a man. Here's how Scripture describes him in 1 Samuel 17, 4 through 7. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet tall, or nine feet tall, nine inches tall. He wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins. A bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. Now, I want you to notice he was from Gath. We've already seen that, right? Happened to be one of those three places where the Anakim remained. And although Goliath is not called a giant in 1 Samuel 17, it does mention that he was from one of the giant inhabited cities of old. And it is possible that he was a descendant of the Anakim who mixed with 
the Philistine women. And that is probably why he is not 12 feet tall. Most likely, as this went along and the giants would mix with a normal-sized woman, they began to decrease in size. And that's why he would be down around the 10-foot range instead of probably around the 12-foot range. Again, this is theory. There are some textual variants in ancient manuscripts related to the height of Goliath. So I don't want this to throw you if you read certain versions. Most English translations follow the Masoretic text whenever they translate. And that lists his height at six cubits and a span, which is approximately nine feet, nine inches tall. But if you have, like, for example, a New English uh, version, I think it's NET version of the Bible, it lists Goliath as close to seven feet tall. Does anyone have that in your Bible? That he's seven feet tall. Now, the reason for this discrepancy is this. The Masoretic text differs from some other ancient manuscripts, such as the Septuagint the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as well as other manuscripts found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they list Goliath's height as four cubits and a span, which means he would be six feet nine inches tall. He would be two inches taller than our gentleman that was on stage this morning that is the average height of an NBA basketball player. Six feet nine. Now, if that is the case, we got to kind of figure out how to deal with this translation problem. If you're a translator, what do you do here? Well, it's all context. 2 Samuel 21, 15 through 22 does not specifically call Goliath a giant. It's not the word Rapha. But it does provide other details that are crucial to understand how big he was. So what we're going to do is we're going to nerd out for a minute about his armor. We're going to take a look at it. And the ancient manuscripts of the Bible use the shekel as a unit for measurement. And these shekels varied in weight over the regions and over time. So I'm going to give a conservative estimate of weight in my illustration of 0.445 grams. That's one shekel, which comes out to 12.9 ounces. So that's just a little bit more than three-fourths of a pound. By doing that, we can look at the ancient Hebrew uh, uh, literature from the Masoretic text, and we can see how many shekels are attributed to what he has. There are 5,000 shekels attributed to his bronze coat of armor and helmet. That is the equivalent of 139 pounds. <laughs> Have you ever put on a 139-pound jacket and helmet and tried to walk around with it? His red oak spear shaft, that's what it would have been made of, was 395 shekels. That's 11 pounds. It was probably 10 feet long and it had a 2-inch diameter. We know that the spearhead on it weighed 600 shekels. That actually translates to 16 pounds, 11 ounces. That's heavier than the heaviest bowling ball at the rink. Now, that's going to make your spear very top-heavy. So what you have to do is put a counterweight toward the back. And I have done the math on this, and it's going to take a 6-pound counterweight to balance that spear out with that spearhead. The bronze javelin would be for throwing. And so, therefore, you're going to have to have something much smaller and much lighter. So let's give it one-third the size of the red oak thing. And we're going to say that it probably weighed 11.23 pounds. His bronze shin guards, for someone that size, would come in at about 717 shekels. That's 20 pounds. His sword, it would be a scimitar, which is kind of a curved, edged, cutting-edge sword, 
would be 931 shekels, 26 pounds. You say, well, wait, Jimmy, how do you, how do you know? It doesn't mention how big the sword was, okay? In researching swords, I discovered the average Bronze Age sword, Bronze Age being the time of King David, weighed 2.2 pounds, much smaller than medieval age swords. One of the largest swords known to exist, this is not it, but this is a big boy, and this is going to be a good representation of it, is the two-handed, see it? Double-edged sword. It would weigh 13 pounds, and in order to have a cutting edge, it has to stay a width of only one-eighth of an inch, no more thickness than that. It had to be built longer than most, so it would be about six and a half feet in length. This sword is about four and a half feet. So you got to add two more feet to this sword, and you have a medieval long sword. Now, if you have a sword that big, you're going to have to have somebody who's at least in the 200-pound class, probably about 250 pounds, probably about 6'4", to wield that sword in battle effectively. That's a medieval long sword. Okay? So if Goliath is six feet nine inches, then he's probably going to weigh in, you know, about 300 and something pounds, and he's, there's absolutely no way he's going to be able to wear all that armor, and he's not going to be able to wield a sword that weighs 26 pounds and is eight and a half feet long, because that's how long I think his sword would have to be in proportion to all of his other armor. Now, I want you to think about what a war machine that would be. He's got a, a sword that, starting here, is eight to eight and a half feet long. It weighs 26 pounds. He's got all of his armor on. He's got a huge reach. He's basically 10 feet tall, and his arms are extremely long. There's about a 10-foot killing path all the way around him with him swinging. Is there any way on earth you're going to get in there your size, average five, five in the Israelite army, and you're going to have your little sword that weighs two and a half pounds, 2.2 ounces, and you're going to kill that dude? <laughs> Do you see the predicament that all these soldiers had when they talked about Goliath? Goliath was probably around 750 pounds, but when he put this armor on, I think he came in at about 1,000 pounds. We're talking a tank right? And these kind of soldiers were called champions, and they were placed at the front of the line. So that's why I personally rule out the Masoretic text interpretation that he was only 6.9 inches tall. I believe that Goliath was 10 feet tall. Now let's talk about logic. Why would the Israelite army, as you know they were, be scared of Goliath if he's only 6 feet 9 inches tall? They have a king, Saul, who is a head and shoulders taller than anyone else, and their average height is 5'5". Five five. What does that make King Saul? Six foot, six inches. King Saul is only three inches shorter than Goliath, and he's terrified to go out against him? Or they're terrified of him even though their king is that big? It just makes no sense whatsoever. So I believe that we go, based on the context, with the bigger interpretation especially due to the weight of his armor. So Goliath was putting fear in the hearts of every single Israelite man and woman and child. The stories were being spoken of him around the fires. And people were worried, do we have a champion that can stand up to him? 
What are we going to do? They're going to take us over. We're going to lose our country. Well, meanwhile, there's this little teenage peasant boy named David mending his father's sheep, spending a lot of time in the fields outside Bethlehem, hearing about the exploits of Goliath, the famous giant warrior like the giants of old, and he's thinking about Moses, and he's thinking about Joshua, and he's especially thinking about that 85-year-old man who was awesome, Caleb, and he's thinking, I killed those lions, I killed those bears, I attribute that power to God, he's given me the ability with a sling, he's given me the ability with weapons, we're going to talk about those tomorrow morning, wonder how I'd do against that giant. I just wonder the thoughts that went through that young man's head. We're going to pick up with that tomorrow morning. Lord, thank you for the opportunity just to be together. Thank you for these men. I pray, Father God, that as we wrap this thing tomorrow, that we are going to see something truly amazing that you did not only in David's life and not only in the lives of his mighty men, but what you're going to do in our lives as well. We want to go home off this mountain as giant slayers. So Lord, we, we anticipate your message tomorrow from your amazing and powerful word. And we, we want to open ourselves up for you to show us what giants need to be slayed in our own lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus.